and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Food and Sustainability, The Truth About Hunger by Anthony Warner. It was first broadcast live on the 6th of August 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for your support. Hello, hello, thank you for that, thank you for that. I'm glad everyone's got virtual hands. Um, thank you everyone for, um, for, for, for being here or being there um, tonight. Um, so I'm my uh, introduction um, said my name is Anthony Warner. I am a chef. I am actually a, a, a chef. I do do work in the food industry, and um, so I still do a bit of a um, bit of professional cooking. But um, I you know sort of have this moniker as the Angry Chef, which is a blog that I write. Right. So I yeah I I'm, I'm a writer. Um, I, I write about food science as well as working in the food industry, um, and I think I probably have a bit of a reputation for. Um, writing about sort of debunking fad diets and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I write for a number of people. I've written a column for the Sunday, for the Sunday Times for a while and um, for New Scientist and for Men's Health occasionally even and, and a couple of other magazines and newspapers. I'm currently writing for The Telegraph, a little bit on food issues. Um, and most of my work, as I said, is about debunking false beliefs and bad science in the world of food. Um, you know, I've been doing it since about 2016. Um, and I've written some books. Uh, quick plug of the books. Uh, this is my first book um, called The Angry Chef, uh, Bad Science and the Truth About Healthy Eating. And this is a debunking of fad diets. And on that slide, you'll see three quotes about the book. And I think they quite nicely summarise the sort of things I'm interested in and, and perhaps some of the sort of things I'm going to be talking about today. So the top quote is from Steven Pinker, who people will know and probably have opinions about, but um, he, he's a psychologist and he's, he helped me with some of my early writing. Um, because one thing that I'm really interested in, and something that's not talked about in, in, in the world of nutrition science enough, I think, is, is the reasons why people make food decisions and the reasons why people decide to eat certain things. And I think it's a lot more um, complex than, than than we make out, um, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of a lot of psychology behind why we make the dietary things we do and why we have certain beliefs around food. And so that's always been a you know really uh, a, a key interest of mine, and one of the things I really write a lot about. The middle quote is from Kevin Whelan, who's a professor of dietetics at King's, um, and kind of that just demonstrates that I have had in my time writing a lot of support from the, um, from the from the dietetics and nutrition science community and from people working in in nutrition and medicine um, and that's been very helpful for me because I, I get access to lots of people with lots of lots of knowledge um, you know I'm, I'm a writer who reports on, on other people's knowledge I don't consider myself an expert on food science but I have an enormous amount of help from 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 a lot of people in the scientific community and I think that I've had that support because um, I say a lot of the things that they can't say, you know, a lot of stuff that, that perhaps they want to say about certain diets and certain Instagram diet gurus or people on television talking about food uh, or, or sort of general media um, coverage of food science. I, I, I perhaps say things that they they're, they're really want to say, but perhaps they can't because they're clinicians or, or academics and, and um, you know, they're, they're, they want to remain professional because you will, as you speak to people in the nutrition science community, 
they there is an enormous amount of anger about the way food is talked about and some of the misleading and, and damaging and dangerous information out there about food and diet and health. Um, and then, then the bottom quote um, from Prue Leaf, which I, I was lucky to get before she got the Bake Off job, actually. Um, but Prue um, was very supportive of my early writing, as were a lot of chefs and a lot of um, food writers. I had a lot of support early on because at the heart of what I do, um, you know, I am a chef. I am someone who loves food and loves to, to eat and loves to cook. And, and I think food is an incredibly important part of our lives and our culture. And almost all of my writing is about taking away that sort of guilt and all those sort of problematic relationships people have with food and get food back to what it really should be about, which is pleasure and enjoyment. Um, and so I think that's a lot of uh, food writers and chefs saw that early on and, and you know, understood that that was the case and so supported my work early on. As time's gone on, I've perhaps sort of I, I've had sort of clashes with a few people because I, I tend to sort of pick apart everyone's tensions and, 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 and false beliefs. And we all have them, you know, including myself. But you know, I, I have challenged people and, and generally that's not always endeared myself to everyone in the food writing community. But I still have some fairly good um, relationships with, with, with a lot of people. Um, the next book, um, taking a little time to change. Um, oh, dear. So um, there we go. The next book is called The Truth About Fat. This is my second book. And this is about obesity and, um, you know, diet-related disease and, and, and the sort of misunderstandings there are about that. People often portray it as a very simple um, issue that people gain weight because, you know, they, they, they eat too much and don't move around enough. And if they want to lose weight, they should eat less and move more. You know, obesity is actually a very complex issue. The science behind it is, 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 is very complex. The societal reasons behind obesity are very complex. Um, and uh, I attempted to take, take apart them and um, yeah, got some got some nice reviews and nice comments about that. More from the science community. It's much more of a science book, the second one, than it is, is a food book, really. Um, and for the last uh, year or so, or two years, really, I've been writing my third book, which is very much the hardest book I've had to write. Um, really involved uh, sort of an enormous amount of learning on my part, um, and it's about um, sustainability of food systems. And a lot of um, what, what I'm talking about today is going to be about that. And that book is written now, but it's going to be out in, in um, January next year. Um, and it's called Ending Hunger. And it's, it's really about, about um, sustainability of global food systems. Um, but it's also about that in the context of you know, the most important thing, um, which is, is ensuring that um, you know, people don't go hungry. And it's about the history of how as a as a human population, we managed to sort of overcome hunger and and get to the point we are now, where we had this sort of advanced developed food system, um, where wide scale mass famines have was all but been been abolished, and you know, what that's going to look like in the future. Um, and I, I, what I also do, um, I'm also an ambassador for the Ask for Evidence campaign for Sense About Science, um, and I just talk briefly about that because it's, it's relevant to to all the stuff that we. We're going to be talking about and and you know, relevant to a lot of modern life. The Ask for Evidence campaign is you know, essentially a campaign um, which is encouraging people to ask for evidence about issues of of science. Um, and it's particularly a case on things like government policy or, or claims of company. If you see something in 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 the world from politicians, from companies, from individuals, from people, you know, online influences. If you see claims, um, sign, you know, which 
you think don't have evidence to support them, if you see unevidenced claims, then Ask for Evidence is a campaign to encourage people to ask for um, the evidence for those claims. And um, it has a website and you can go on the website. If you see see something in, in the media or, or anywhere that you think is not backed by evidence, then you can go onto the website and you can um, enter uh, enter a request um, and uh, sort of show that you've asked that organisation for evidence and it will be backed by the, the people at um, Centre About Science and the campaign and that they will sort of help investigate and help to bring to light anyone making um, false claims, which is obviously, I think we all know, is incredibly important at the moment. And I'm sure the audience out there today are people who who would support that sort of um, that sort of campaign and understand the importance of it, you know, particularly um, with what's been going on for the last six months or so, but generally in in in, in life as well. Um, so that's that. I mean, uh, so I, you know, for the last few years, I've been writing about about food science um, and really looking at. Um, the thing that really interests me is the reason why in the world of food particularly, but generally in life, but in the world of food particularly, why we have so many false beliefs and why we adopt so many sort of troubling, um, troubling belief systems about, about food. And you know, I've, I've brought it down to a number of areas and they're covered in my books, but there are, there are three main ones I want to discuss today. Um, the first is um, quite, quite, a, quite a simple and I think quite a quite a well-known one, which is um, this sort of desire we have for, um, for complexity, uh, or desire we have to, to avoid complexity and look for simplicity. Um, you know, if you look at the, the, the two paths there, there's one that's a nice simple path to it, and there's one that's a complex path. And as, as people, as sort of um, pattern-forming, you know, um, pattern-loving sort of creatures who, who, who look for patterns in randomness, um, we love, um, we love to look for simple, simple solutions, even though those solutions might be wrong. And in so many areas of, of life at the moment, um, it's particularly in food and in um, sort of diet, certain things are complex. Nutrition science, almost by definition, is quite a complex science. Um, and so if you have two options, if you have two people um, touting um, solutions to complex problems, like, you know, what should I eat? And you have like a, an online influencer, you have sort of Gwyneth Paltrow type character saying, you know, sugar is more addictive to, than cocaine or, or giving some sort of like really, really simple message that, that sticks in your mind um, versus a sort of qualified dietitian who will look at the whole of science. And, and, and almost certainly, because nutrition is this quite uncertain science, have a more nuanced position about how you know, it will depend on circumstances. You know, diet's complex. You know, there's no particular right and wrong way to eat. The nuanced message, because it's not because, you know, the, the online influencer is not constrained by the need to tell the truth and can pretty much say anything they want. Then often they will um, have a more compelling story. And even though perhaps we even know that, that that story is not necessarily the truth and not necessarily evidence based, it's what we're drawn towards. Um, so you know, I very much think that this influences a lot of our decisions in, in, in quite a negative way this desire for simplicity rather than complexity and in a complex world when there are complex issues and complex decisions to be made that can be extremely problematic because we'll often take the sort of the path of least resistance the simplest path and it's often the wrong way to go and the second area is um something which does seem to you know affect a lot of our decisions these days particularly on diet um and that is uh, is tribalism now you know we we have um you know, we have this sort of large 
complex, diverse society these days. And um, some of our sort of traditional sort of ways of ordering ourselves in terms of large family groups and, and religions and, and um, belief systems have, have broken down over the past few years. But we still have a very innate human need to, to belong to something and to be part of something and to be part of a tribe. Um, and, you know, diverse groups of people will um, will often form into different tribes. And, you know, that, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. But these days, I notice particularly about diet that for a lot of people, um, a, a kind of belonging to part of a dietary tribe has become a very important way people have of signaling something about themselves to the world. Now, I interact with a lot of people on on, on social media and, and lots of them don't like me and, and the ones who particularly don't like me are tend to be the ones who if I look at their profile on social media um, then then their dietary ideology what they you know what, what they believe about food will be very high up perhaps even the main thing about about them on their profile and I always think that's interesting but that what someone eats or how someone eats could be the most in, in their opinion the most important thing um, that they want to signal to the world about themselves you know it's it's like if they're vegan or if they're low carb or they're they're carnivore or they're paleo or any of these sort of very strong dietary tribes you know i, I think that's sort of a, a fascinating thing and that 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 has problems associated with it um especially when when you're coming to sort of the, the beliefs you have around your dietary ideology you know when i or when anyone challenges those beliefs about that dietary ideology, says that maybe, you know, a certain diet isn't healthy in some context or, or, or certain things that people um, believe and understand about food aren't necessarily true. If that's against the ideology that these people belong to, against that sort of dietary tribe that these people belong to, that becomes not so much a case of challenging the evidence, but it becomes a case of challenging something about someone's identity challenging something very fundamental about them. something that something about the about the way that they see the world and the way they organize themselves in the world and that's very challenging for a lot of people and that's why there are so many sort of very entrenched dietary beliefs and um i believe that that creates quite a lot of problems and it certainly creates uh, an inability in the people who belong to those sort of dietary tribes to accept evidence that doesn't sort of conform with their particular view of the world now the third um area that I want to talk about is something that's sort of slightly different to that um, but but is a very powerful um, way a very powerful influence on the way people think about about themselves and, and about about their beliefs particularly around food I mean that's the appeal to antiquity and many people will be aware of this but it's it's, it's a very innate well, I don't know if it's innate but it feels like it's quite an innate human trait because you know, if you look at the heart of every single religion, pretty much. There is this idea that there's this sort of unspoilt paradise which humanity has somehow ruined. And we have this this um, natural instinct that when we look back at the past, we imagine that the past was a better than, than things are today. We imagine that, that the modern modernity has ruined the natural world, has, has ruined everything. And, you know, that can be quite nonspecific about what period of time that is, but it runs through enormous amount of, of, of false rhetoric it runs through politics um it runs through a lot of dietary science you know in politics it's like make america great again you know like america what in indistinct which bit of the world we're, we're looking back to or you know, take my country back also just that sort of retrograde ideas about people have which it was very very populist ideas um but in dietary circles it's like this idea that you go back to the paleolithic to say 
you know, do we eat like cavemen? Um, or far more common and very common among among a lot of food writers, actually, and, and one of the reasons why I upset people quite a lot is this idea that, you know, people say, oh, just eat like your great-grandmothers used to or, or your great-great-grandparents used to or eat like we did 100 years ago, not really understanding what that was actually like. It just feels instinctively like that was a better time that we could go back to. Uh, and that, that, that does become very problematic because, you know, I think in in you know every every way possible really if we look at our modern food systems problematic though they are in many ways if we look at our modern food systems in no country had better dietary health 50 years ago people were not cooking more fresh food 100 years ago more than that very few people at that time had kitchens in their homes you know most people didn't cook fresh food and eat, eat around a family table at that time the dietary history of most countries is actually written by you know, the, the richest people in that country, the people who had servants and the people who had kitchens, and that was a very, very small proportion of people. But the actual reality of, of you know, dietary history and going back 100 years, going back 50 years, is that diets were very poor in quality and lots and lots of people were going hungry. On almost every way, human progress has had one direction in the past, you know, in terms of food, in the past 10,000 years. I think um, there's a very good quote by, by Hans Roslin, which says, you know, where's the effect that you know, the, the way globalization has happened around the world is not perfect, but the worst thing possible is actually not being part of it. You know, we are we are sort of far better off than than anyone in the history of, of the world um, has ever been, even even as things are now. You know, the, the reality of of um, you know the appeals of antiquity is not this sort of wonderful time. It's you know, it's essentially nutrient deficiencies and it's you know, inadequate diets and, you know, it's, it's diseases um, from from lack of food and, and people, people you know, large, large numbers of people going hungry within, within you know, even, even sort of um, countries like ours, if you go back sort of 100 years, even if you go back sort of 60, 70 years. Um, so, I mean, having said that, I will say that, if you look at modern food systems, and I spent the last two years writing a book and, 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 and analysing our modern food system in an environmental context and in, in, in the context of hunger and, and feeding enough people. And, uh, you know, there is, it is definitely true that there is, you know, there are problems with our modern food system. Things are not perfect. Um, you know, for instance, there are still, in the world today, there are 800 million people who who do not have enough food to eat on a on a daily basis and are, are chronically hungry. Eight hundred million people, including millions of children, will go to bed tonight without enough food, um, which is you know, shocking because there is enough food in the world, but you know, it's most most issues of, of supply and and, and uh, poverty essentially. Um, and on top of that, there are also you know, two billion people who have deficient diets who have nutrient deficiencies. Which, whatever you read in the media, that is by far the largest cause of non-communicable diseases in the world and one of the largest causes of death in the world is, is insufficient diets, not necessarily people going hungry, but people having insufficient uh, various different types of nutrients, particularly iron and calcium. Um, and then there's no denying that, um, that, that agriculture is a major assault on the planet. Um, it is one of the largest causes of, of um, global warming. I, I have a picture of a cow there, which is a little bit unfair because it's far more complex than that, and I will get to that later. But, um, you know, the emissions caused by global agriculture in the next, by, by 2050, 
unless we do something dramatic to change our food system by 2050, global agriculture will have released enough greenhouse gases to um, cause two degrees of global warming, so to exceed the entire Paris Agreement targets on its own. Um, and you know, that's not to say agriculture is the biggest contrib- contributor, because there are other industries which are obviously like fossil fuel industries um, are, are sort of bigger contributors. But without changes to agriculture, we will exceed the Paris Agreement targets anyway, whatever we do in any other sector. So you know, I'm not saying that um, changes to agriculture are are enough to mitigate um, the, the harms of, of, of global warming, but you know, they are essential. You know, it's not sufficient, but it definitely is essential that we, we make changes to our food system to reduce the, the amount of greenhouse gases um, that they're producing. And then, then another issue, a, a very important issue, one that doesn't so much affect us in this country, um, is, is the issue of water. Agriculture uses 70% of the water in the world, um, of fresh water in the world. Um, and, you know, there are large parts of the world which are running out of water. There are water crises developing in, in, in many countries. And there are cities which have had sort of come close to sort of disastrous levels of, of, of water shortage. Um, and over the next few years, that's going to increase. The amount of water we're using is increasing. The availability of water is increasing. You know, things are getting warmer. There, there's many, many reasons. Um, and you know, water stress and water crises are going to cause enormous amount of death over the next, next sort of 30, 40 years unless something dramatic changes. Um, and people, when we talk about conserving water, we think about domestic water sources, we think about cities, but actually, like I said, 70% of water is used in agriculture, the biggest use and, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest cause of water stress. And without sort of addressing that, then, then, then we are in, in desperate, desperate problems. And um, actually related to that, you know, one of, the, one of the other big problems of agriculture, <coughs> as well as... Um, well, uh, it, it, as, as well as um, sort of global warming and, and emissions, is is the disruption it causes to the soil. We have pretty much been unsustainably mining the world's soil for for many many years, um, and that is extremely problematic. Um, you know, big societies like um, big civilizations, sorry, like like um, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, and even the Mayan Mayan populations, they all eventually collapsed because they they kept on mining the soil around them um and using soil and you know, growing stuff can, can, um constantly without without replenishing nutrients in the soil and they they ended up those civilizations collapsed because their soil ran out um and we're doing the same on a global scale and you can't replace it you know it's not something you can replace it's something you have to sort of care for and you have you have to have to sustain um and you know that's going to become a big problem over the next few years, and it also, as carbon in soils is depleted, it releases most of that carbon into the atmosphere. And you know there are different estimates, but since the beginning of the industrial revolution, it is estimated that the amount of carbon that's being released from the soil is very, very similar. Certainly, in order, the same order of magnitude, perhaps not as big, but the same order of magnitude as the amount of carbon that has been released. Um, from the burning of fossil fuels, it is there is an enormous amount of carbon released as we as we degrade the soil. You know, so it has that dual effect of adding to carbon in the atmosphere and also to you know essentially reducing the 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 yields of agriculture as soil is depleted and eventually you know it becomes impossible to grow. And then something particularly uh, relevant now, I suppose, is um, the next slide, which is about deforestation. You now. As we as we use more and more 
agricultural land. Um, I require more more agricultural land. We require more food, and we grow more resource-intensive um, agriculture, particularly animal agriculture. We require more and more land in order to grow food on, and there isn't a great deal. In fact, there's, there's virtually no spare agricultural land in the world. So if you require more land to grow food on, the only way to to create new land is to cut down the tropical forest. That's pretty much the only real source of large amounts of agricultural land. And that's why so much forest is being being cut down, why we are losing huge amounts, which you know obviously releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere, but it also pushes the natural world into a smaller and smaller space and brings humans and the natural world closer together. And uh, you know that has the potential to create um, more and more um, pan- pandemic diseases as you know, um, viruses cross, go across species barriers because that's what happens when you push nature close together. When you, when you squeeze and squeeze nature into a smaller and smaller space, more and more of these viruses are going to come out and it's going to become an increasingly large problem. Um, but it also, you know, equally tragically, it, um, it causes... You know, as you destroy habitats, it causes extinction of species. You know, whatever whatever people say about about sort of the harms of agriculture from from chemicals and from pesticides, the biggest harm in terms of species extinction is destruction of ha- natural habitats. And you know that has caused over the past hundred years the largest and fastest species extinction event um, in the past billion years. It, you know, it's, it's, it's wiped out more species at a faster rate than the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. And you know, that effect of humanity, that effect of the last couple of hundred years of humanity is going to be written into the fossil record of this planet um, you know, until, we're, until we're sort of um, burned up in the sun in a few billion, billion years' time. You know, we have caused that level of destruction on planet Earth. And there's no doubting as well that we have only just started. You know, the, by 2100, there will be about 11 billion people on the planet. The population will probably, most people can say the population will start falling. Um, so we ha- still have a massive amount of population growth to, 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 to go before it does. Um, and 11 billion people is you know, just an astonishing Astonishing number compared to you know, the beginning of the, the 20th century when I think there was 1.1.6 or so billion people. Um, so we had had this massive population growth. But more than that, or more importantly than that, in terms of environmental destruction, we have probably three percent GDP growth every year in the economy. Obviously, that will be pulled back over the past sort of six months or so, but probably not that much. And um, you know that means three percent per year of growth means that in the next 40 years. Um, the economy will be four times as big. So, so think of all of the environmental destruction that we've had so far. The economy will be four times as big in 40 years' time, and which is astonishing and perhaps sort of even unthinkable. And I'm sure that we will find new ways to grow the economy without having such a harsh environmental impact. But an economy four times as big is an incredible thing to think about. And, and what you have to remember in any of these, these sort of conversations about global food systems is... There are there are um, you know a billion people perhaps on the planet who have a pretty nice life and are pretty comfortable, um, and there are another six or seven billion people on the planet who, who who are having a pretty miserable time who don't have very much at all in comparison. And the next forty, fifty, sixty years are going to be dominated by the fact that those large group, that six billion people, are going to want a life more like ours. 
and there's not much we can do to stop that. And and we actually, you know, there's morally, I don't understand how we possibly can say that we should try and stop that. Um, but we somehow need to find a way of managing that growth. And one of the biggest impacts is going to be going to be the food system and how we manage the changes to the food system. Because as people get richer, they want more resource intensive diets, particularly animal products. Um, yeah, so we cannot continue producing food in the way that we do now. Uh, as I said, two degrees of global warming by 2050. Also, every single forest will be destroyed by 2050 unless we make dramatic changes to the way we eat. Um, and, you know, I've been looking at these issues for quite a long time now, and it's pretty clear to me that we could address every single one of those issues. We could free up land um, by farming in a different way and changing the way we eat. We could not only massively reduce greenhouse gases um, and, and less water, but we could also use agriculture as a way of drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. We could actually use it to mitigate a lot of the, the impact of, of global warming um, by locking carbon back into the soil. It's one of the most effective ways we have of, of pulling carbon back into the soil. So if you can have, have regenerative agriculture, which increases the carbon contents of soil, then and that can make a huge difference to, to, to global food systems. Um, so we could do those things, but for some reason, for some reason we're not. And you know, there are there are a number of reasons. Um, and I'm just going to take you through some of those. Obviously, I've, I've just written a book, so it's out in January. So you know, I'll, I'll refer to that in the future. But I can go through some of those reasons, and they they relate to what I was talking about earlier. They relate to these ideas of complexity and the other sort of two two reasons why. I'm going to take you through them one at a time. So complexity, um, you know, we have this the the the, the impact of the the um, food systems on the environment is complex and. The ways of mitigating it are, are, are complex. There's not a simple solution. You can't sort of come up with the answer in, in, a, in a tweet or in a few words or in a paragraph or in a simple mantra that you can repeat to people in, as a sort of advertising advertising step. Um, and, you know, but obviously people are drawn to those simple solutions. And people want those simple solutions and we constantly look for them. Um, and you know, one of one of the things people use, and one of the first environmental metrics to appear on food, was about local produce, was food miles. Um, and I think we sort of uh, people will remember that being being quite a big thing for quite a while. You know, eat, eat locally and eat locally to save the planet, and it, it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. You know, if you can reduce the 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 impact of transport on on our food systems, then then we'll presumably have a better food system. But unfortunately, it's not quite that simple. Um, you know, nothing particularly wrong with eating local food. But in the UK, I think transport of food um, accounts for about 12, 11, 12 percent of its um, greenhouse emissions in the, around the world. It's probably about one percent. It's far lower because we, we import a lot of food and we, we, we our food generally gets transported quite quite a lot. Um, but it's, it's 11 to 12 percent of its greenhouse impact. And actually, the reality of a lot of food choices are that if you if you buy something which is not easily grown within the UK. Perhaps it's a hothouse grown product or, you know, tomatoes or cucumber or salad or peppers that's been grown locally, um, but has had to have a lot of inputs because we don't have an ideal climate or we don't have ideal soil or whatever for, for growing. If, if, if it's easier to grow something abroad and then ship it here by, by, um, by road, then it, it's generally better to, to, the imported product in terms of environmental impact because 
you know, the environmental impact of growing it locally in non-ideal conditions is going to be bigger than the actual impact of, of, of um, the transportation. So it feels right, but it's actually it's quite complex and quite nuanced. And, you know, it's good to, good to eat some, um, some local options, but it is complex. And so when we look for those simple solutions, and we find this throughout the whole sort of environmental argument, when we look for these simple solutions, they, they're, just, they're just not there. Um, you know, the second most common argument is that, that we should go vegan. And, and, and I, I'm told this a lot. And yeah, there's something in that. I mean, I think I've mentioned already that, um, that you know, we, we, you know, meat has a disproportionate impact in, in terms of land use, in terms of greenhouse emissions. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's saying you should go vegan it is just not that simple, unfortunately. Um, you know, there's, there's good evidence that some animals within the system are pretty good. There's plenty of evidence that we eat way too, way too much animal produce, and we certainly should cut down. But actually, in, in terms of overall agricultural systems, some animals in the system can be quite a good thing. They can recycle some sort of crop residues, which, which, which can't otherwise be eaten. You know, they, can, they can get uh, good quality protein from land, which isn't suitable for very much else at all. And certainly in, in the developing world, um, they can be often people's only possible source of income on on the on the land that they live so if you tell some people in some parts of the world that they should switch to vegan options you know and they shouldn't be raising meat the likelihood is they they, they would starve um and also some animal animal products are are, are quite nutritionally dense and they are very way too much in this country and, and far too much in america and far too much across the whole of the developed world um in many countries a, a small amount of animal produce in the system can do an awful lot of good for people's nutrition status. Um, you know, so really what we need to be doing is increasing the amount where we in the, in, in, in the developed world, in the developing world, and decreasing the amount we eat in the developed world. And it should perhaps meet in the middle somewhere at some sort of ideal level of consumption. And there's been various estimates of what that should be. Um, uh, and that's a difficult calculation to come up with. But, you know, it's certainly a lot less than we're currently eating. The, the, the amount of meat we eat now is completely unsustainable. My view is always we should we should value it more and, and eat it less often. Um, but how you actually achieve that is, is, is complex. It's difficult. You know, some people will talk about uh, raising, um, creating cultured meat, um, growing cellular meat and, and that sort of thing to take the animal out of the system. Uh, yeah, I think that maybe that has some value, perhaps. But um, when I think about the scale of meat production currently in the world, um, you know, I think there are something like 300 billion kilograms of meat produced. Um, consumed every year so even if you to make a small dent in that the infrastructure required to grow cellular meat which is always going to be a very very difficult thing to do anyone who's got any experience of growing cellular cultures will know it's a, it's a, it's a difficult process um, you know to produce free yeah you know, produce even sort of 10% produce sort of 30 billion kilograms of, of cultured meat is, is going to require trillions of pounds worth of infrastructure and probably not be worth it you know what we really need is behavior change we really need to encourage people to eat less meat but that's a complex thing to do and it's difficult um so a tribalism so tribalism affects this as well um i i know i look at um the sort of really um big tribes um dietary tribes um and they all sort of have views on on the environmental impact of food and a lot of those views are are wrong unfortunately um because they're, they're they're subject to the biases i was talking about earlier and there's a there's a thing that people have which is called the unity of the virtues um which is common it is, is a concept from theology really um and it's the idea that if something is good in one way then it's going to be good in all ways 
Um, so if you think that a particular food item, if you think that a vegan diet particularly is, is, is good for your health, you'll also think it's good for the planet's health. You'll think that it's the best tasting diet. You'll think that it is a good diet for type 2 diabetes. You'll think that it's a good diet for, for sort of cardiovascular disease and all these things. You will associate a unity of virtues with it, which might not necessarily make any sense. You know, one of the, one of the um, environmentally in terms of calories per, per, per hectare, Sugarcane is one of the best crops to grow. It's not necessarily the best in terms of, in terms of health. Um, so, you know, there's no logic behind the, the idea of the interventions, but it's a very powerful feeling that people have. And, you know, I, I get that with, um, with both vegans and with people who eat more sort of um, carnivore-type diets and, and um, eat uh, low-carb diets. They all have this idea that um, their particular dietary choice has a unity of the virtue. Um, and uh, that applies to environmentalism. So even you know, despite the evidence, people who eat um, high meat-based diets will will claim that the meat is that they eat is not that bad for the environment, especially if it's sort of grass-fed or whatever raised on pasture. Despite the fact that we could never raise enough meat on pasture in order to meet the demand that, that we actually create by, by our consumption levels, um, and there's two figures up there. There's four percent and fifty-one percent, and um, you know they're, they're both sort of touted by meat eaters and and uh, vegans as being the um, amount of uh, greenhouse emissions attributable to to meat. Um, uh, so four percent is the lower amount, which a lot of uh, a lot of um, meat advocates will, will will talk about, and that's the percentage of greenhouse emissions produced um, in the U.S. as a percentage of their total emissions. And that's you know, based on a, a reasonable study. 51% is um, seen in a lot of vegan items. There's a couple of um, uh, you, um, Netflix videos based on that, around that figure, saying that 51% of, um, of uh, greenhouse emissions are caused by, by, by the meat industry. Um, and both have some truth about them, but they're both sort of misleading in, in many ways. The 4% is... As I said, it's from the U.S., so it's, it's the U.S. as a whole, and the U.S. is one of the most carbon-heavy economies in the world, if not the most. And actually, so 4% is actually quite a lot. But um, also, what the trick is that when you look at the U.S. on its own, you don't account for land use change in other parts of the world, and you know, which, is, which is something that people people will do when they're trying to sort of um, absolve meat from from being um, from, its, from its climate impact. Um, and obviously, meat's a global commodity. It's ridiculous to take the US in isolation. You have to look at how consumption patterns are affecting the rest of the world and how they're affecting deforestation. Um, and the 51% figure is, again, it's, it's kind of true, but it, what it does, it, it includes the emissions created by animals as they breathe out carbon dioxide, which obviously animals breathe out carbon dioxide. But um, you know, the reality of that is obviously that um, the carbon dioxide that animals breathe out is carbon dioxide that's been captured by plants. So car plants capture the carbon dioxide, the animals eat it, and then they breathe out the carbon dioxide in a normal respiration process. Um, but you know, that doesn't add to the net amount of carbon. It's only when it's converted into methane, which is more potent um, global warming. So you know, that's misleading as well. The actual figure is probably most people accept it's kind of around 14, 15 percent um, animal agriculture in terms of total global emissions, which is obviously you know, a fantastic amount, but it's not as much as a lot of vegan campaigns will say. It's not as little as a lot of um, meat advocates will say. And yeah, that's all because of this sort of tribalism and this confirmation bias that people have within tribalism. <coughs> um, <clears throat> finally, just to talk about um, the appeal to antiquity. 
this is very big in um, in in, envir- in environmental discussion because um, well, you know you have this idea that climate change is a modern problem. It's something that's happened recently. So you know, people have this perception that if they go back to a point in the past and, and the way things were in the past, then then maybe you you won't have the problem of climate change, which is obviously ridiculous um, because you know we have this sort of massively increased human population. It's a very popular popular sort of belief. Um, and people look to solutions from the way we used to farm. And you know, one of the most powerful of those is obviously um, the organic industry, which is, you know, although it's not entirely, um, you know, it's, it's not an, organic is not an ancient um, idea. It's a 20th century idea, but it, it kind of is about taking agriculture back to pre-20th century, back to free artificial fertilizers, back to artificial pesticides and, and that sort of that sort of thing, and, and to sort of older practices. And that's how the organic movement came about. And it still sort of holds, holds on to that. And, and people, a lot of people will eat <coughs> organic produce thinking it has a benefit on the environment. Um, and there are lots of reasons to eat organic. People might want to eat organic food, but in terms of the environmental impact, there's no justification for eating organic if you're you're concerned about the environment. By pretty much every single measure that that, that makes sense and is important, organic is worse for the environment than any other form of agriculture. Largely because it just has a lower yield, uh, especially on the big ticket crops like 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 um, like corn and wheat, um, and. Um, it also has sort of higher levels of nutrient runoff because you know, it's not easy to control the amount of nutrients going onto the field. So nutrient runoff into water is a, is a big problem. Um, and, you know, the yields, uh, the yield loss of organic is perhaps sort of 25, 30 percent for, for a lot of the main crops. Um, and you know, anything that does have an advantage on has a slight advantage on energy, but energy is not a huge part of the environmental impact of food. It has... Some advantage on on biodiversity in the field, so you, you have sort of more um, wildlife that exists among the crops. That's largely because of a low yield, um, and when you increase the yield, that that biodiversity tends to drop. So it's actually a symptom of of organic's big problem environmentally, um, rather than rather than sort of anything more beneficial. But it, it is a complex picture still. I mean, you people talk about the idea of land sparing versus land sharing. Um, so this idea that we should intensify agriculture, and so a lot of environmental um, work on agriculture is about intensifying and freeing up land to return to nature. Um, organic is slightly different because it's not intensifying, it's kind of about sh- land sharing, so sharing the land with nature and, and farming less intensively. Um, and, and usually it works out that the land sharing idea is, is, is not, as, um, not as beneficial, um, when you actually look at the sort of the, the metrics, but in reality, what often happens is when you intensify agriculture, so you, you you're going non-organic and you're intensifying as much as you can to farm a small area of land and save the rest for something else. You, it, what you do with something else tends to not be ideal. It tends to very rarely, actually, in reality, get shared, get sent back to nature and, and, and reforested. It tends to get used for biofuels or for for, for something else. So it's, it is a complex picture. But um, you know, in isolation, organic is is not not ideal um, from an environmental perspective. Um, really what it what it feels like to me at the moment is that in terms of um, in terms of our food systems, um, we're now you know we, we require this sort of substantial behaviour change in order to really really progress things and move them forward. Um, and we kind of stood on the edge of a chasm where we need to get across. At the moment, we have a few people making some big changes. So a lot of people have changed the way they eat to benefit the environment. A lot of um, farmers and producers have done huge, sort of ma- massive things in terms of 
producing food in an environmentally better way. Um, but you know, it's, it's a few people making big changes rather than what we really need, which is almost everyone making making small changes. And you know, not about going completely vegan or organic or GMO. It's, it's it's about it's not about simple absolutes. It's about creating a better food system. And just um, the last thing I want to discuss is is about you know why that's difficult and you know what what can do and what 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 actual real change looks like, real systemic change looks like. Um, and I want to talk about food waste, um, which is obviously a huge issue um, environmentally. Food waste, it's estimated that globally um, about 30 percent of food by weight is wasted. Um, that's about one trillion dollars a year worth of food. If it was the biggest, um, if it was a country, you know, it would be a very strange country. But if it was a country, it would be the third biggest environmental polluter um, after USA and China. And, um, you know, if, if we weren't wasting so much food, um, then you know, we, we could end famine, we could end nutrient deficiency, we could, we could massively reduce the Im- environmental impact of food. All we have to do is, you know, somehow get to grips with the fact we throw away one third of all the food we eat. And in countries like the UK, most of that food is thrown away um, by the consumer in the home. Um, so, you know, one third of what we buy ends up in our bins. In um, other countries, it tends to be sort of closer to production, um, but we have very efficient production in, in this country. We just we just end up throwing a lot of stuff away, and, and, and you know the um, you know, with all that potential upside, it's it's incredible really that we can't we can't seem to to shift the dial on this. Um, we can't seem to change it, um, and the reasons behind that are, are complicated. People think instantly assume it's about poor choices, it's about lack of cooking skills, it's about people not having the same sort of make do and mend attitude they used to have back in the past. So we have the appeal to antiquity. It's about, you know, people people look for simple solutions, why people are wasting food. You know, it's too cheap, you'll hear most of the time. People people don't value food enough, so they just buy it and don't care and throw it away. Um, but actually, you know, when when food waste is studied in a, in a thoughtful and intelligent way, and there's been various um, studies on, on food waste, um, a couple of really good ones from Sheffield University. Um, what we see far more is that it's not about poor choices at all. And, and people care about food waste. You know, one issue that people care incredibly about, and even if they're not worried about the environmental impact of calories, people inherently think that food wasting food is a bad thing. Um, so it's a real touch point for people, but, but it's still very difficult for people to overcome because the real issues underpin food waste are organising principles about the way we currently eat. You know, one of the biggest causes of waste is is the pressure that people have to buy fresh food and cook family meals from scratch and cook at home and feed large groups of people. Now, personally, a lot of my writing, anyone who knows my writing will know that that's something I'm sort of extremely passionate about. I believe that sharing food and cooking for people you you, you love and you care for is is a fundamentally important part of our culture. And for me, it's a fundamentally important part of being human. you know, to, to to say that there, there's some problem with that is a difficult thing for me to say. <clears throat> but you know, the way people are cooking now, the pack sizes are inadequate for what they're buying. They're buying a large number of ingredients to cook a complex recipe, and they're wasting a lot of them. And that's where most of the waste in, in our food system in, in in the UK certainly is coming from. You know, a lot of it might be called inadequate pack sizes, um, but you know, most of it is is caused by people cooking too much and and cooking large quantities of stuff that they eventually waste or, or buying ingredients in quantities that they, they don't use half of them because they want everything for a recipe. Um, and so, you know, well, what does that mean in terms of solutions? Well, that's 
complex. I, I'm not really sure. You know, perhaps it means we need to fundamentally unpick the, the fundamental beliefs we have about food and, and think about eating and cooking in a different way. And, you know, um, perhaps, you know, take the main meal of the day in the evening, which is causing all this waste and bring that sort of earlier in the day when people are eating in workplaces, obviously not so much at the moment, um, or in schools or in colleges, perhaps sort of institutionalise some of our cooking um, people, some of the food we eat um, more um, and have it cooked in sort of central kitchens. You know, if you really want to address this problem of food waste, if that's something you're really serious about addressing, then then you need to challenge your organising principles um, and you need to create systemic change. And it's complex and it's difficult. And one thing that, 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 that someone, that the research from Sheffield University found that you know, was was that people who eat you know, frozen pizza don't waste food. And that's the sort of fundamental truth about that. You know, people eat cooking fresh food do waste food. But if people are eating frozen pizza, which, which feels like a less sort of a morally, um, morally good choice, um, actually has environmental benefits. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's a difficult challenge. Um, but it just shows how we really want to address things. Um, then it's, it's a case of really um, sort of unpicking some of the principles that organise our system. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish on this actually because because um, I've been speaking a bit and I'm getting on for time. Um, but the, the last thing I'm just last slide I just want to show is um, about you know pe- pe- people will want to know I suppose if you're looking at the sort of destruction that I've outlined in terms of environmentally, what is a golden rule? What what is what is sort of a, a sustaining um, a sustaining sort of principle by which by which we could we should try and um try and enact these sort of complex changes that are needed you know and, and the most important thing um and it's in the title of my book really is is you know that food and agriculture is an incredibly important industry you know, without you, know, you can you, we can make do with pretty much every other industry in the world to some extent without agriculture we'll all be dead in in a few weeks so we need to remember how important it is we need to remember how important it is that we have as a as a species, we have fought hunger to a point where we've almost almost got on top of it and almost got rid of it. Um, and, and for me, the key to progress and the key to creating a better world is always making sure that if we're going to improve and change our food systems environmentally, we don't increase hunger. Because you know, feed, the, the the most profound and important breakthroughs in, in, that humanity has made have all been made in the time that we sort of overcame hunger when people had time to think beyond their next meal and weren't constantly thinking about about how they were going to feed themselves we had the chance to progress in music and society and science and, and all the you know technology and all that progress happened because we stabilized our food system um so if we're going to to change our food system the better we need to make sure that we don't undermine that progress and make sure we keep fighting hunger at the heart of everything we do thank you and welcome back and welcome back to Anthony um, we're obviously now into the Q&A section of the uh, talk so um, we will uh, let's just kick it off with the first question so Anthony um, first one comes from Skeptical Gumby in Oxford what are your thoughts on genetically engineered crops I know you mentioned it briefly but um, I'm sure you've got um, more to say on the matter yeah um, okay uh, I mean it's it's, um, it's interesting I mean I, you know I, I I, I write quite a lot in the book about genetic modified crops. 
I, I am a supporter of genetic modification. I don't mean there's any there's any evidence of of, of um, genetically modified crops. Um, I'm just going to stop for a minute because I'm getting a little bit of um. Yeah. <laughs> Is that better? Okay. okay. <laughs> I, I don't think um. You know, there's no evidence of any harm of genetically modified crops. I think that you know, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I've not seen any convincing evidence that you know, of the millions of people who've been eating millions of meals containing genetically modified um, products, there's been any confirmed, corroborated evidence of, of any harm. Um, and there's no reason why there should be. You know, I mean, I I, I did study biochemistry when I when I was at university, um, and you know, I I don't know an enormous amount about it, but I know enough to know there's no conceivable reason why. You know, something genetic. We we all we we gene DNA in every every meal we eat, um, and you know, m many of our many um, organisms are sort of modified naturally in different ways. Um, uh, and there's there's considerable evidence of benefit. Um, you know, in environmental benefit. You know, BT. Um, BT crops do have, uh, you know, reduce the amount of insecticide on the field, reduce the amount of insecticide that farm workers have to handle um, and have been shown to improve um, biodiversity. Um, you can, you know, you, you can you can do um, no-till farming um, more effectively with, with um, more effectively with uh, you know, glyphosate and you know, glyphosate resistant, uh, resistant species. Um, the environmental benefits of them is, is are not quite as big, but BT certainly. And there are many genetically modified um, crops coming through, including some sort of disease-resistant potatoes and, and drought-resistant maize, um, which which could be hugely benefit beneficial. And also, there are you know in in the next sort of ten, maybe fifteen years, probably there, there, there's likely to be enormous advances, um, including perhaps nitrogen-fixing wheat and and corn. Um, and you know, C4 rice, which is more for photosynthesis, uh, and, and all those things. So there's a huge amount of benefit, um, and I don't think there's any evidence of harm. And I, I think that the European um, attitude to, to GM crops has been extremely harmful to, to European agriculture and to progress globally, and, and the way that they've resisted the introduction of, of GM crops in um, other parts of the world, you know, where, where it could have huge benefit, you know, golden rice being one example, but there are also Panama-resistant, disease-resistant bananas and, and, and other sort of, uh, uh, you know, nutritionally enhanced project, um, products. So, you know, I think you know, my, my view is that they're incredibly important for the future. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, should, we should perhaps be wary of the power they might hand to large corporations. But for me, that's why we should be making sure that you know, much of the research in genetic, genetic modification is is for the public good and institutions and, and universities and that and that sort of thing, rather than rather than having too much control by big corporations. And I mean, that's the problem been the problem in the past associated with some big companies and some fairly sharp, unpleasant practices, to be honest. Um, but you know, the benefits. You know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of benefits. Absolutely, it's got a bad reputation from some of the companies doing some shady stuff, which has then yeah. led to the whole thing having a bad reputation when actually. Yeah. A lot of it is a fantastic move forward, um, yeah. especially for um, underprivileged areas. Um, right. Um, Anonymous asks, is it better for the body to eat smaller meals more often or the three big meals we as a country eat because of our culture? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, you know, genuinely, I have no idea. You know, I, I think with any of these answers, uh, any of these sort of questions, it, I, I find it incredibly likely, unlikely that... Um, that there's one perfect way of eating for everybody. Um, I think we should, if something doesn't suit someone in terms of preference, then then they shouldn't be held down to a particular cultural expectations of the way where they should eat. But you know, I, I don't think there's 
you know, there's probably evidence that can point every way. The problem in nutrition science generally is that it's very, very complex. Um, and it's very difficult to do really hard science on nutrition because, you know, doing controlled experiments on long-term feeding of people and looking at health is very difficult. So it's usually on epidemiological sort of studies or, or, or various, um, various different um, ways of studying it, which do create a lot of uncertainty, you know. So how would you actually do the experiment which proves which is the best way of eating in terms of small meals or large meals? You know, there'd be a lot of confounding factors if you just studied people, how people are eating. You can't do an experiment where you control someone's eating for, for years and then look at their health outcomes. But you'll never really know. Um, so really for me, it's just like accepting that uncertainty and eating in a way that which, which, which you think is good for you. And anyone who comes along and says, this is the way you should eat, definitely, I've worked out and I've looked at the science and this is it. They're, they're, they're porky snake oil, to be honest. Um, the next question comes from Mr. Smith in Nottinghamshire. Um, what's the worst diet you've come across? Mm-hmm. Um, a broad question, but... Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's people there's people who claim they don't eat, the breatharians, aren't they? Um, who say that you can live off, off spirituality. Um, so that's that's mad. But um, I, I suppose, oh, I mean, it's the ones that I think, the ones that, the ones that annoy me the most. Um, you know, there are loads of ridiculous diets. All carnivore diets are ridiculous. You know, um, you know, all fruit diets are ridiculous. But the ones that annoy me the most, I think, are the ones which make um, health claims. Um, you know, so the alkaline diet for cancer um, was is particularly egregious, and it has resulted in people dying. You know, the the, the gaps treatment for, for 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 dietary treatment for autism or dietary you know, cure um, for, for 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 autism um, is particularly exploited and particularly nasty. Um, so you know, they're they're the worst ones, the ones where people make very restrictive diets and, and claim they're going to sort of um, cure a particular disease. I think I think the GAPS diet even claims it can cure eating disorder, a very restrictive diet which claims it will cure eating disorders, which is just, you know, uh, I mean, horrific. And, um, you know, should, should uh, you know, well, you, you think some, something should be done. You know, it should be regulated in some way. That's Seek not a professional. It. Don't go to the internet when you've got eating disorders yeah 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 the idea that a restrictive diet would be a treatment for eating disorders is particularly egregious because it's just preys on people in a difficult situation um a question from colin bj um is it true the british population was healthier at the time of world war ii food rationing than any time before or since um i I don't think so i mean it depends how you define healthier i suppose i mean you know I'm not quite sure what what sort of metric you're using for, for healthier life expectancy was a lot shorter. Healthy the healthy years of, of life was was expectancy was a, was a lot shorter. Um, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say people were healthier. I think when when people um, say people were healthier, they often mean people were thinner, um, which is, is very much not the same thing at all. Um, but you know, I mean, maybe there's some sort of evidence. But I, I I'm not I I don't think there's any. Um, I've not seen any convincing evidence that people were healthier. You'd have to look at individual sort of metrics. I'm sure some things were better. I'm sure some things were worse. You know, often one of the problems mistakes people make when they're looking at this sort of thing is say, you know, more people die now of non-communicable diseases. Um, you know, but that's very much a, 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 a an artifact of the fact that you have to die of something. So you know, if you're not having as many communicable diseases, um, you know. Um, contagious diseases and there's fewer people dying in accidents and violence then yes more people will die of non-community because you're going to die of one you're going to die of something in your life yeah and that's the case with a lot of things so you know if 
Cancer, certain other cancers have have gone up. That's often a case of the fact that people are just living longer and not dying of stuff earlier in life. So you know, I, I don't know if people were healthier, but I don't know how you define healthy. Um, Igor asks, "What's your favourite food-related craziness?" Favourite food-related craziness. <laughs> favourite. Um, I don't know. Um, I think um, you know, one of one of the ones that I. The kind of draw me in, drew me into this world of, of debunking um, diets, um, fad diets, was the idea of um, that food can there's food that can detox you. I think that's that's always been one of my favourites. So I sort of I, I do do enjoy because it, it still persists, and you see it on you know the shelves of major supermarkets. You certainly see it in health food stores. You know you see it uh, in adverts, and you see it in you know, shampoos and uh, just, uh, all, all these things. This, this idea that, that you somehow have toxins inside you which need to be drawn out and the only way to draw them out is by drinking a smoothie made with kale or something like that, you know, is, is so bizarre and unscientific um, that it, I, I wonder how this idea persists. But it, it, it's, it's everywhere and it just doesn't go away. However many times it gets defunct, it just keeps on coming back like, like, like Terminator. Um, and... Uh, you know, I, 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 it just it amuses me because it turns up and you sort of get. You, eventually, after a few, a few, a year or so, you get bored of like pulling apart detox diet nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's an old favourite. It's the same with a lot of serious science. No matter how much you knock it down, it keeps coming back. Yeah. yeah. Um, from Dave the Drummer, one of our regular question askers, uh, do you feel we're making any progress in combating food woo like the organic food lobby? Um. Are we making any progress? I mean, I hope so. I, I mean, I think um, I think um, you know, the GMO GMO argument has receded to an extent. It's obviously still quite a big thing in in, in a lot of Europe and in, in European policy. Um, but you know, there's less funding because because you know one of the big problems was a lot of a lot of the big charities could get a lot of funding from um, from sort of anti-GMO sentiment because the public sentiment was so strong. And a lot of their fundraising was was through these sort of campaigns, and that has receded. So I imagine that will that will that will lead to it. But you know, organic's still a big business, and it still pays a lot of people to to sort of promote um, information that supports their their business, as as a lot of industries do. Um, but are we making any progress? I mean, one thing I have seen in in the past um, the past uh, six six no, well few few months, however long we've been locked down for. Um, is that people have realised um, quite early on how incredible our modern food system is, and how how um, you know we should we should support and praise that. And, and a lot of the a lot of the um, you know, because it has kept us fed and it's kept us safe underneath in, in extraordinary circumstances. And if it had fallen apart, if the food system had fallen apart in in, in March April this year, you know, there would have been rioting on the streets, and, and it would have been horrific. Um, but but it but it kind of held together and and proved that it was pretty resilient and that it could respond to people and and actually we we got to the products that we found sort of solace in were were sort of um manufactured foods often um and so i think people probably have uh, you know i think that will have had an effect on people and you know one of the big um ways that the the sort of um the lobbies who you know the food woo type lobbies use is this appeal to antiquity that things were better in the past but I think we're now when people have been in this situation where they've seen the modern food system for what it is and, and it, it's kept them safe and kept them fed, I think those arguments will be hard to make. And I, I hope those arguments will be hard to make. And I hope we'll look back and we'll go, 
you know, God, our, our food system is flawed and it is problematic, but it, you know, it, it, it kept us fed and it did its job remarkably well and we shouldn't um, knock it too much. I know, I speak from experience, I, I work in retail. So I actually work in food supermarkets. I've seen this yeah. firsthand. And I've seen how much aggression was shown over being forced to queue up, let alone what it would have been like if they hadn't got their food. Now, yeah, yeah we had shortages of certain things, but they were very short-lived. Um, you know, you couldn't get pasta for a week. Well, most people have a bit of pasta in the house anyway. Not a major problem. If that had gone on for months, we I think things would be very different. Mm. Um, Patrick asks, if a society made a bigger effort to eat food that is in season, do you think it would lower our ecological footprint? Hmm. Um, eat food is in season. I mean, possibly. There are. I mean, I made I made the point about about growing local local food and how it's how it's a complex um, complex benefit. It's not always beneficial. Sometimes it is. You know, often it's not. Um, eating food out of season. I mean, I think. Our desire to have lots of foods all the time, um, even when they're not in season, um, can be problematic. Um, and I think we, you know, air freighted food is kind of difficult to justify. You know, um, flying uh, asparagus from Peru um, and you know green beans for, from from Egypt because they they have short life. You can't really you can't really see or or, or land freight them. Um, so you know that that's problematic. And I think we should probably try and get away from that to an extent. Um, if we all ate in season, I mean, you know, one of the big problems with that is that there would be large parts of the year when, when our diets would be pretty limited and pretty miserable. Um, and I think that we wouldn't, we wouldn't cope particularly well with that. <coughs> um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of benefits to growing, you know, stuff where it grows well and, and, and moving it around Europe and trading, you know, producing what we can produce well and, and trading that. And, you know, we're not, we're not a food, we're not a self-sufficient, um, in food and we haven't been for, for, you know, since the 1750s. Um, so, you know, I don't think there's any any way really that the UK, and probably maybe just, but, you know, it'd be very difficult for the UK to be self-sufficient in food and just eat seasonally, uh, locally and seasonally. So I, I don't think we should try too hard, but I think we should, you know, question our need to have access to asparagus 12 months a year, perhaps, and, and green beans 12 months a year, and, and look at uh, having more stuff that's seasonal, but making sure we have lots of variety in our diet still. So you know, it's, it's a difficult balance. I mean, in terms of health, it's good to have lots of variety and eat loads of different stuff. So I wouldn't want us to be eating just, you know, what the turnips for, for two months and kale. I don't like kale. But, um, you know, uh, thinking about it, but not being too limited, I think would be my advice. Um, Anonymous asks, do services like Blue Apron and HelloFresh have a positive or negative environmental cost? Hmm. That's really interesting. I have seen, I mean, obviously, there's fairly early days for those sort of businesses. Um, life cycle analysis are, are, are complex and difficult to do. Um, I have seen um, some initial work which has said, yes, there's a benefit because you have less food waste. And it's kind of one of those sort of things I was talking about, you know, having a slightly different thinking about the food system and, and, and that helps to create um, less waste. There seems to be the, the the amount that you save on on food waste seems to be offset by the amount of plastic plastic they're using in their packaging, um, and you know there are sort of questions to be asked about that. I'm sure they're working on that. I'm sure they understand that, and I'm sure they've looked at those and that that work, and I'm sure they're doing work on it. So I think I think that there, there's there's potential in in those sort of those sort of um, services. I, I think it probably you know I think they're fairly niche and they're, they're for 
you know, fairly expensive at the moment. And I think perhaps when we get to a point where we take a similar sort of model, but do it slightly differently and make it more accessible, it might actually have some benefit for, for a large number of people. I think I can envisage, you know, people having, you know, for some people it might be beneficial to get, you know, a couple of recipes to make and, and have that work done for them so they don't have to think about it and they're not buying a pack of six leeks and, and, and a pack of five peppers to make one dish, you know, because that's the only conservation environment. So, you know, I think there's good stuff there. But at the moment, I think the jury is out on, on how beneficial they are for the environment currently. But I think there's potential for them to, to be pretty good. Okay. <laughs> um, Anonymous asks, is breakfast really the most important meal of the day? <laughs> Simple. <laughs> um, I, I refer to my, one of my previous answers. I think, uh, you know, if, if, if breakfast is your most important meal of the day, then yes, it is. You know, but it's not going to be the same for everyone. Um, important in what way? Important in terms of, you know, I don't know. For me, for me always the most important um, meal of the day is, is you know, I, I'm, I'm not someone who... Um, I'm someone who believes the biggest value of food is is what it does for us in terms of um, being a, a focal point for our social activities and and, and, and the way we have it bringing people together and, and, and bonding with people. So for me, the most important meal of the day is the one way you make the, the best um, best and most sort of um, valuable connections with the people around you. Um, so if that's breakfast, then yes. But for that's me, it's not. I get very early. Yeah, that's a really nice answer. I like I like the thinking behind that. Um, Garnet Chedji asks, with the sunlit uplands of Brexit looming and the reduction in food imports it will likely entail, will it have a positive effect on our diets or the opposite? Um, okay, so I, I, on our diets, I don't really know. I don't imagine it will massively impact um, the food available for sale in the supermarkets, um, if I'm honest. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people are worried about a lot of... Um, uh, you know, regulations being relaxed and, and you know, certain things being for sale which weren't for sale before and, you know, that may be a problem. But for me, um, for me, probably probably not, um, certainly not initially. I don't think long-term it will make that much difference. Um, it might, you know, prices of some stuff might fall in rise, but I, I don't think it, I don't think it'll make a huge amount of difference. I think what it will make a difference to is, is to agriculture. You know, whatever... You know, I, I, I'm I'm someone who, who who voted to remain in Europe, but a lot of European agricultural policy I find very difficult to support. Um, and so it will obviously be a a um, you know the devil will be in the detail. Um, and but in terms of what happens with agricultural policy in the UK, I think it's an opportunity. Um, I hope it's not doesn't become a wasted opportunity, but I think it's a real opportunity to create a better. Um, a better system of agriculture. It's a real opportunity to, you know, change the agricultural subsidy system, which is one of the biggest, um, you know, problems with, with European agriculture in terms of the way it's subsidised, and you can do so much better. Um, and there's so many problems with with it, and you know, things like GM policy. You know, that's blocked by Europe. Essentially, it's blocked by Germany and France, um, and because they have this attitude to to GMs, which I think is unscientific and wrong um you know obviously some people will disagree with that but you know it gives us an opportunity to change our policy on that and that will probably be slow and incremental um so i don't think no i don't think it'll change much about um the 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 food we eat if i'm really honest but i hope it has a it has a potential to change agriculture 
Um, and the jury's out on whether that'll be a positive change, but I'm hoping. It- um, another question from Anonymous. He's been busy tonight. Um, do you subscribe to the FDA wide base food pyramid that recommends over 200 grams of grain de- intake daily? Um, I, I mean, I, look, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with eating um, grains. Uh, um, whole grains are pretty good, lots of fiber, and I don't think there's anything wrong with carbohydrates. I know a lot of people think that's too much carbohydrate. Um, I think the main problem with any sort of food pyramid, any 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 attempt to standardise food, is what I said before, is that it's not going to be ideal for everybody. I'd be in, enormously surprised if there was one ideal human diet for every single person that we all should be eating. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think if anybody... I mean, I mean in, in some ways as well, those, those sort of um, FDA, whatever, um, and not FDA in this country, but... Um, those sort of things are not designed to be, to tell individuals how to eat. They're kind of about foreign policy, really. Um, so, you know, I I don't have a problem with carbohydrates. I don't mean we should demonise grain-based products. Um, I, I think we should probably, a lot of them, we should probably also eat a, a wide variety of stuff. Um, but I think the idea that you can create one one idealised diet for everybody is, is inherently flawed. Um, and we should perhaps be looking to sort of um, change the way we make public recommendations about how people eat, because I, I don't think it quite works. And you know, in, when you're when you're saying people should eat a certain way, I mean, saying everybody should eat the same way, you know, it doesn't make sense. Um, the next question, um, I think, is a fantastic question from Becky. Um, who needs to drive the change in food production? Consumers, supermarkets, or farmers? Change in food production. Oh, um, God, ah, I mean, consumers will drive it. Um, because you know supermarkets do what consumers want want um, essentially, but there is another driver um, who's not mentioned in, in those four, which is which is which is probably more sort of fundamental, which is um, you know policy, which is policy makers, because so much of agriculture and so much of the food we eat is subsidised um, in different ways. You know, meat is subsidised, grain is subsidised, you know, grain production of grain production of um, um, cereal crops, um, production of sugar, even even though we tax sugar, sugar sweetened drinks, you know. So it's and that 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 sort of has a real impact on on how we farm and the ingredients that are cheap and the ingredients that supermarkets will want people to buy and the way people market. But I think it's those sort of fundamental underlying things we really need to look at. Um, the farmers. Farmers are only going to grow. You know, farmers are not in a position to tell tell sort of their their people they're selling stuff to what what you know to give them so they have to grow what's what's um what's wanted um supermarkets are going to respond to consumers so if you really want to make sort of changes that you really need to you know sort of get under the skin and, and create systemic change and a lot of that is going to be policy <laughs> you know it, i mean you can consumers can influence it I mean, we have an enormous amount of power um far more than far more than we realize um, but you know the real chain is, is going to be the stuff that really, really sort of underlies the, the whole system. I think. Um, Vic Earl asks, uh, how sustainable is food from the ocean, and could we do without it? Mm-hmm. Um, God, I, I mean, I don't know really. I mean, it's actually one area I didn't get enormously into in, in, when I was researching my book. It was, um, you know, I looked a little bit about about, about aquaculture and, and, and fish farming um, rather than. Sort of, um, rather than going to the oceans, I mean, I, I think um, it's. I, I'm all for having a variety of things in our diet, and I'm all for having 
you know, there's certainly some sort of health benefits, certainly of eating some some types of fish, and I think we should probably um, probably sort of em- embrace some of them into our diet, some whether that's farmed fish or, or sea fish. I'm not really sure um, what what the, what the best thing is, but I, I suspect you know, I, I think it's like any of these things. We, we, we're we're certainly consuming way too much. We're certainly unsustainably fishing various parts of the ocean. One of the biggest problems is, you know, for a lot of farmed fish, we're having to go out and catch fish in order to feed the farmed fish, which is you know, which is unsustainable. And actually, one of the one of the ways you can get around that, interestingly, is to um, uh, well, it, it's it's kind of it. It's not being licensed yet, I don't think, but it is to grow um, plants, uh, genetically engineered plants which have um, fish oils in them, um, genetically engineered to produce fish oils that have been produced by Rothamsted Research, and that will um, remove the need, if that can be sort of licensed and used, that will remove the need for um, for farming, you know, uh, um, feeding um caught fish to to farm fish um so that's and that's been developed by Rothamsted research actually in the uk and the irony is that they developed it uk scientists developed it funded funded in the uk and you can't grow it in the uk it's going to have to be done in, <laughs> in america and canada um which is <laughs> is interesting but you know about a hundred thousand acres enough um fish oil in order to feed the to supply the entire of um global aquaculture so i, I think yeah i mean there are, there are problems with overfishing. There are problems with ag- aquaculture, um, but uh, they generally come down to the same thing as we, with meat: is that we, we sh- consuming some is good, consuming as much as we are is is, is too much. Um, I'm not quite sure I understand this question, but I'll read it anyway. Anonymous okay. asks: How do the incentives that capitalism creates contribute to health and environmental damage from food, e.g., food waste, famine, animal agriculture, and obesity? How do the sorry? Um, how do the so how do the incentives, incentives. that capitalism creates contribute mm-hmm. to health and environmental damage from food? Um, incentives of capitalism creates. Well, I mean, I mentioned about about. Um, so I suppose subsidies were mostly created, um, were mostly implemented because of, of I suppose um, opening up global markets. You know, so uh, and they they have negatively contributed to. To environmental harm, you know, because when when you opened up agriculture to global markets after after the Second World War, um, you had this uh, this this problem that that people in you know Europe was competing with people who had, had more land and had more more labour and in many cases had better soil and, and, and better climates for growing staple crops. Um, but you know, so so European farmers couldn't compete and. Because of that, European countries were worried about becoming, um, you know, farmers going out of business and, and not be, being self-sufficient in food. Um, so it's certainly for staple crops. So, so they subsidised agriculture to an ex- extraordinary, extraordinary degree in, in the UK and and throughout Europe, and particularly in Europe, but also in, in other parts of the world, in Russia and Russia and the US. Um, and that 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 did create problems because you end up subsidising the commodity crops, you end up subsidising wheat, you end up subsidising, you know, corn. And you end up subsidising sugar, and you end up subsidising also a lot of things that um, you end up subsidising um, beef um, and, and a lot of animal produce, but also the feed that goes into animal produce. So you're, you're producing you're producing stuff uneconomically, and because the subsidies were based on outputs, you, you end up being incentivised to put lots of chemistry onto the fields um, more more than you actually need because it has a small yield benefit. 
um, which you, you get back because of the, the subsidies. And so, yeah, that, that did cause an enormous amount of harm. And I think that caused an enormous amount of environmental harm. It also messed up our, the, the, the sort of um, the, the ingredients which were, um, you know, cheap and made, you know, refined wheat and um, beef and um, chicken and um, sugar, you know, being sort of the things that um, were cheap and you know, our food system end up being based on a lot of those things and end up having a lot less variety in it. And I think that's the real key because you end up with less variety in the food system when you when you start subsidising agriculture. Um, and it's a difficult problem to overcome. It's not, it's not. It's partly capitalism because it is the opening up of free markets, but it's also the fact that people was you know people didn't want to become food insecure because they were worried about conflict. So you know, as with many things, it's the uh, it's not so much our our um, desire to eat badly it's, it's more a desire to, to to kill each other that, that caused a lot of the problems in global agriculture because we were so worried about food security that we subsidized sort of um a lot of uh, a lot of things which were considered essential like wheat and sugar um so yeah it's, it's a complex picture i mean it's always very difficult but one of the big problems um i suppose is also um the i the 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 fact that so many, so much of the actual cost of our food is not factored in, you know, so so many of the environmental harms are not factored into the price or external to the price of, especially of meat, um, and that's that can be very problematic as well. Um, Do you see a solution so, to that? Um, well, it, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, for me, I'd much rather focus on on, on actually reducing the environmental harm rather than making people pay for it. Um, because you know, the economy keeps on growing. People, people will eventually, you know, people will just keep on, keep on buying the stuff. You know, even if the price gets internalised of, of stuff that's causing environmental harm, um, people will still still buy it. Um, so I, I'd much rather we focused on 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 reducing the harm rather than sort of making certain things rather than pricing certain things out of reach. I'm you know I, I'm talked about meat. I talked about what what needs to happen with meat consumption is we eat too much. Um, people in the developing world don't eat enough and we need to eat less and the people in the developing world need to eat more. It needs to meet in the middle and that, that's the ideal situation. The problem is if you internalise the price of meat production, then then it becomes out of reach of the people without money and, and, and only goes to, it becomes a sort of very divided food system. Um, and, and so I think internalising all those those costs is, is is extremely problematic and we need to find a better way of doing it we need to just what we need to do really is make the sort of food which is better more desirable um if that makes sense so make food you know you want to make a better food system you need to eat more pulses and beans and and, and lentils and chickpeas and those sort of things which are real environmental powerhouses really um and provide lots of protein and, and, and good quality nutrition um and we need to eat more of that and less meat in this. And so what we really need to do, rather than trying to manipulate the price, we need to make those sort of foods, that I, you know, the lentils and beans and pulses, we need to make them desirable, we need to make them culturally more acceptable, we need to make them, you know, and it, there's, there's evidence of that, that you can do that. It's not impossible. You know, there are cultures, you know, you look at... Um, you look at Indian cuisine, um, and, and in, in India they, they eat far less meat than than other countries of equivalent um, financial means, and and that's largely due to sort of uh, cultural cultural um, reasons. But also they have there, and because of those cultural reasons, a cuisine where those sort of foods are, where better foods are valued is has become sort of more prevalent. So you know, I'm convinced that there are. You know, I'm convinced that the future relies on making the better foods more desirable rather than just pricing out 
things that we don't want people to eat. Um, another one from Anonymous. Are there benefits to intermittent fasting for weight loss? Um, <laughs> I think if you fast intermittently, um, then you will temporarily lose weight. I don't mean there's much doubt about that. Um, you know, um, I, I'm not I'm not a fan of, um, uh, you know, I certainly would never advocate any weight loss diet, if I'm really honest. I'm not, I, you know, I, I wrote a book about about um, about different diets and, and why I think that the whole culture of dieting is, 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 is problematic because it focuses on weight loss rather than, you know, we, we, we're worried about um, making people lose weight. We, we, we fail to worry about, you know, we focus on weight and we don't think about health. Um, and I think if we focus on health and forgot about weight, we'd, we'd be in a much better place. Um, so I don't like to frame any any dietary change as being one which promotes weight loss. Um, essentially, because I think it's a, I think it's it's um, it, it should never be seen as, as as an end in itself. I, I don't think it, it's at all. I mean, weight loss is at all relevant, um, you know, because there's plenty of ways to lose weight which are absolutely terrible for your health. Um, and I think when you focus too much on weight, you, you forget about that, which is why you know millions of Americans take um, essentially take amphetamines. Um, in order to lose weight and, um, you know, or, or, or have you know, various other sort of d- destructive ways of ways of doing it. I mean, I know. I, I mean, I, I've been told there is some evidence that, that fasting might have occasional intermittent fasting might have some some benefits to people's general health. I, I'm not really I'm not really a fan of that. I think that people tend to get sort of extreme relationships with diet and if you're telling them just don't eat food for a certain period of time I think that's that potentially a dangerous thing to do and I wouldn't would never want to recommend it so I'm gonna we're getting towards the end I've got three more questions I'm gonna ask okay. you one one serious one and then two a little bit jokey <laughs> okay good so um the serious one I think we'll go yeah we'll go serious one first and um, we've actually had a couple of questions around this so I'm sort of amalgamating two questions okay and um, they're both around artificial meat so impossible okay. burgers um, one is talking about big fast food are looking at using it for uh, economic reasons. And what do you think about that? And the other one is what do you think of it regarding possible health and ecological impacts? Um, for, for particularly for cultured meat, for like meat grown in meat cells grown in a laboratory or not in a factory. Uh, I, I think it's for both. I think it's for both um, the meat replacements that you get in your supermarket and right. also for um, the lab grown meat. Um, yeah. I mean, I, they're, they're very. I mean, there's very different um, answers depending on which one. Obviously, there's no lab-grown meat for sale now. Um, it is going to be um, when it does come for sale, which I think it probably will at some point. It's going to be very, very expensive, um, and so there'll be no real um, initial economic benefit. I think it will take a long time before that's translated, before you can make that in a in a way that has any economic benefit over 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 meat. And like I said in the talk. It's you know we eat an astonishing amount of of, of meat every year, um, you know three hundred um, billion kilograms of. Uh, so if you're you know replacing uh, you know even a, a small percentage of that with with something something grown in a laboratory, then you're you're talking about enormous um, enormous amount of in, in uh, factories you know around the world trillions of pounds worth of investment. So I don't I don't I think it'll be you know that. That sort of um, lab-grown meat will be an interesting thing. I think it will appeal to certain people who, you know, uh, you know, like meat but don't want to be associated with the animal part from, for ethical reasons. Um, and you know, good luck to them. But I don't think it'll ever be a, a feasible 
economic solution to 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 replace most of the meat in, within our food system. I think that's that's pie in the sky. And also, I would worry that I would hand a lot of power to small companies, to, to big companies, sorry, and, and small producers. You wouldn't get small farmers, and you know, because it required millions of pounds worth of investment to build a factory. Um, uh, yeah, in terms of the uh, you know sort of uh, stuff you get now, soy mostly based on soy and pea and a bit on wheat protein. Um, you know, I, I as a development chef, I do some work on those. I know quite a lot about about the way they're produced. I think they're fine for some people. Um, you know, um, some people don't like the the um, sort of ingredients they're using. Um, you know, protein isolates and and methyl cellulose and, and stuff like that. And that's up to them. I mean, I'm, you know, there's no there's no harm of any of those products. Um, and if you enjoy them then I think that's great. Um, I would always say that the, the you know, I always come back to the same thing, that actually they might be a small part of food system change um, in terms of being able to make a re- reasonably realistic beef burger um, made, from, made from pea protein. Um, the bigger part is going to be behavioural shift and changing people to, to more, more sort of yeah, ingredients are like I said, like lentils and pulses and that sort of thing, and, and, and more plant-based, more plant-based food. I think that's the bigger change that needs to be made. I think um, the sort of plant-based burgers are a nice, um, a nice thing, a nice sort of novelty item, but um, they're not, they're not um, the, the 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 huge sort of um, shift that people think they are in, in, in behaviour. They're still a very small percentage of the the, the market for me. Um, right. Uh, sorry about that. One second. Um, right. We've got. Um, we've now got the two jokey questions. So, Mr. Sandwich would like to know why do people get so irate about pineapple on pizza? <laughs> um, okay, I, I'm not a fan of pineapple. I, mean, I, ran, I ran a pizza restaurant for a few years in Manchester, or ran the kitchen of a pizza restaurant, and I, I would refuse to serve pineapple on pizza. And um, yeah, so I kind of there. I got I got a quite a serious answer actually. I mean, it relates to some of the stuff we've been talking about. Um, people people get upset about things um, that almost seem like why well, you know. I mean, I'm not forcing you to eat pineapple on pizza, um, but I think what what people have, and and this is something that I've seen in a lot of the stuff that I've been writing in the past couple of years, is people have a very binary view of the world. Um, they, they have they like to categorize the world in, in, into different categories so that might be plant and animal it might be um, natural and artificial and it might be um, you know male and female and you know all these things and they have these sort of very binary classifications of the world and so um, and any sort of blur people get upset about any blurring of those categories so so when you have plant and animal and someone says here's a plant-based beef burger and some that, that's actually quite upsetting for people and when you had like a greg's sausage roll a vegan sausage roll that that seemed to genuinely like viscerally upset a lot of the people when when greg's launched that and they weren't being forced to eat it they haven't stopped selling their normal sausage roll but people were really upset that this thing existed and so i think it's the same thing with pineapple pizza i think people see pineapple as like dessert cake thing um and pizza as meal savory cheese thing and, and and any sort of blurring of those boundaries of the way people classify the world um, people get get very very upset, so I think that's why people get upset about pineapple on pizza, um, and I have to admit that I do as well. I felt that cognitive distance just at lunch today. I had a an Indian pizza, which was a naan bread with a curry on the top and then cheese. Yeah, I, which I just, just felt weird. It was I delicious. Know, I know. But, no, no reason why. You know, it's just, it's just weird. You know, it's like yeah. a curry with mashed potato or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's just wrong. 
it feels wrong, but actually, when you try some of these things, they're absolutely delicious, and you go, actually, I was wrong all the time. Although yeah. pineapple on pizza is still wrong. Um, I'm sure I've uh, made a lot of people angry there. Um, and then the final and probably most challenging question I'm going to ask you, <laughs> what's your favourite food? My favourite food? <laughs> Oh god. Um I, I think um my favorite, yeah, I, I think I've have said this before on my blog. I think my favourite food is is the potato. I think um just because of its versatility and, and all the stuff you can do with it. And also I have this thing. Um with you know, I've worked in, in professional kitchens for a long time and you know, I, I ran ran quite a lot of kitchens and you have to be able to judge um judge a, a, a chef um when they come in and they're doing a trial or whatever. And um, you know, I always had you know, I think anyone can cook like a really nice bit of steak or, or a really nice bit of fish or you know you just less less you do with it the, the the better it is but with stuff like potatoes um there's so much you can do with them and you know it's all roast and mash and and, and, and uh, yeah a million different different varieties and and there's, there's every single one of those varieties you can get like massively wrong and make them really horrible um so you know for me that was always the, the mark of a good chef for someone who can do something with something really simple and may turn into something amazing. I think there are several dishes that you can make with potatoes, which are, um, you know, extraordinary and the height of of cuisine. So that would be my answer. And, and the other one I've heard about chefs doing as a test is eggs. Make a, yep. here's some eggs. Make yeah. them something great. Make something to eat. Yeah. And again, there's so much versatility in them as well. Where you can, there are so many different things you can do. Yeah. That, and yeah, I think giving a chef a simple ingredient and going, right, show me what you can do. Yeah, that's yeah. a real test. Yeah. Right. Um, I think we've reached the end of the Q&A. So I'd like to say a massive thank you to Anthony. I'd pleasure. like to ask, ask you all to give him a massive round of applause in the uh, chat. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I can hear it. I'm sure. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. Um, it's fantastic talk. Uh, thank you so much. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.